Today's podcast is brought to you by my number one choice in tires, Pirelli. And since I used to be a race car driver, I know a thing or two about tires. The iconic tire brand is known for its long tradition of innovation, advanced technologies, and high-quality products. Pirelli recently added the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3 to its American range. Developed to go the distance, it comes with a 70,000-mile treadwear warranty. Choose more mileage, more comfort, more control with the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3. Ask your local dealer for a tune-up. Trust me, I'm a driver. When I was 20 years old, I finally get the diagnosis of degenerative bone disease, degenerative disc disease. So my spine was deteriorating. And this was the reason why my hip broke and the reason why my body was breaking down. And when I went in to see my physician and I'm just being, you know, a young optimistic kid, I was like, okay, so what do we do to fix it? Let's go. Mm -hmm. He was like, I'm sorry, son, this is incurable. But I asked him, does this, does this have anything to do with what I'm eating? And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, what you're eating has nothing to do with this. This is something that just happens. And I'm sorry that it happened to you. So he told me that this had nothing to do with what I was putting in my mouth, but then he wrote me a prescription to put some pills in my mouth. A nocebo effect is when someone gets an, a negative injunction from an authority figure that something bad is going to happen. You, it bypasses your logic. This podcast exists because I love talking to people and I love going deep. The purpose is to plant seeds of inspiration. We enter a space of vulnerability and relatability. And what you realize is that we are so much more alike than we are different. To quote Ramdas, we're all just walking each other home. And the show is just one step. I'm Danica Patrick and I'm pretty intense. Today on the Pretty Intense Podcast, I have Sean Stevenson. He's the author of the USA Today national bestseller, Eat Smarter, and the international bestseller, Sleep Smarter. He's a best-selling health writer, as well as has the number one health podcast called The Model Health Show. We talked so much about his own health journey. I always think it's so important for people to understand where someone's knowledge and experience and advice comes from. And Sean has such a story. He was given an incurable diagnosis just after college. It was a bone disease. And he, you know, shares just about how he pulled himself out of that hole and has healed himself from an incurable disease. And so I thought that that was just such a fascinating story, so inspirational. Um, and then, of course, we got into some of the more nitty gritty things about what he's learned since then. And, you know, the power of our thoughts and how that manifests into our genetic expression, as well as just the power of particular foods and exercise and how that just gives us a chance to live a full life and avoid a horrible thing that none of us want, which is dis-ease, disease in the body. You know, there are so many tools out there. Sean is an insanely smart and educated person in all of these aspects, and it comes from a place of experience and passion, and he just wants to share that with everybody. So please enjoy this amazingly inspiring show with Sean Stevenson. I'm really excited to do this. Oh my gosh. As I've been deep diving, I'm like, there's like, you know, I knew that you knew a lot about health and wellness, but you know, there's really no territory we probably couldn't get into that you don't have knowledge and statistics and, uh, you know, some recommendation on it's, it's really amazing. Thank you. That means a lot. That definitely means a lot. And 
Listen, so I just, I've been diving into your world as well. And I just listened to your episode with Greg Braden. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> oh. That's like, for sure, <laughs> Greg is like my everyday thoughts. Like those, yeah. the things that we talk about are, I love the universe. I love quantum physics. I love reality. And um, I've always been into health and wellness. But when it comes to, when it comes to, all of that kind of stuff. I'm like, oh my God. Do you think about that stuff too? Of course. You know, when all of this craziness start to kick off, the first two people that I look to, to like, what is their perspective was Bruce Lipton and Greg Braden. Oh my know? God. And so, yeah, I know Bruce. So fortunately, like I was able to have a conversation with them and feature his perspective. And I mean, my goodness, it was just, it was very affirmative because I kind of already knew where they would take things. And I mean, they were both just kind of um, really trying to shift our focus back to, you know, empowerment and being able to take a meta perspective on all of these things. And Bruce was really hammering home and he took took us through really the biology of fear and how that's compromising our immune system. And this was over a year ago when I had him on and talked about it. And I don't know if you saw this, but I posted the CDC study, the most recent study. And so they analyzed, it was 800 U.S. hospitals, over 540,000 COVID patients. And they found that the number one risk factor for death from COVID was obesity, which is something we know. Are we doing something about it? Of course not. But the second leading risk factor for death from COVID in this massive meta-analysis was anxiety and fear-related disorders. Well, then my questions that I have in mind are going to be perfect. I mean, Bruce, I've learned so much. I mean, I want, I would, I would love an intro to Bruce. We've been, I've been trying to get him on. I've had Greg. And then the other part of this like little trio is Joe Dispenza. Like those guys end up going out and doing speaking and speaking gigs and stuff. And so I've had Joe on, I've had Greg on, and I really want to have Bruce because the epigenetics Epigenetics fascinates me, and I have so many questions about epigenetics and how, you know, I was listening to him talk about splitting, um, having a, I think it was a, what would it have been, a gene, a gene that was multiplied into like 10,000 10, of them were multiplied into, and then they split them into three dishes, and each of those dishes were given different environments, and then all of those genetics became the environment, and so like this whole idea of epigenetics and how we become who we are. And if we, if epigenetics is something that we have to be cognitively aware of for it to become our, become us, or if we're able to just be in proximity to it. I mean, I'm just so, so, so fascinated by all that. And he's a pro at that. First of all, I'll connect you. So that's already (laughs) done. Second of all, the thing that he always brings me back to, even when I talk about the environment, even when I talk about you know, uh, various expressions and potential, he, he, he always leads me back to the fact that your thoughts are the most powerful influence over all of it. It is your thoughts that are determining your genetic expression, you know, to the nth degree. So whether we believe in it or not, it's still creating. Yeah. And yeah, so it's super fascinating. Yeah, well, we're creating our reality. I mean, when you, you know, people have said for a long time that, you know, this is just kind of a stage and we're actors and we, you know, we're just, 
whether we're holographic in nature or not, but our thoughts are creating our reality. And I think, wasn't it the double slit experiment that showed that, that when you put attention on to something, it changes it, which means that our, our, our conscious awareness to something is what's creating. That's just mind blowing. It is, but this is, you know, it's put it under this big umbrella of the observer effect. And, you know, there's even a really fascinating study. I first learned about it from Greg Braden, and it was the, the phantom DNA experiment. And, and so if, the thing about me too, is like, I'll take those things and I will just like go in deep and actually, you know, re review the analysis, review the studies, the outcomes and start to look at, start to question things like, what did they not see in this? What could be another potential? What's another explanation? Um, but the phantom DNA experiment, um, basically they took a, a vacuum, which if you have a vacuum, and I'm not talking about a vacuum cleaner, I'm talking about like a chamber that eliminates everything from being able to enter it or to leave it. And there's no like, you know, oxygen infusion, none of that stuff. It's just a, a, it's a, it's a closed vacuum seal. And there would be nothing in the vacuum. They made sure that there was nothing at all in the vacuum, but there's something you cannot possibly re remove, which is biophotons, these kind of little packets of, 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 of energy, of light that make up our reality. So there's nothing they could do about that. And so what they did was they took some human DNA and put it into the vacuum and something really strange happened. The biophotons that were just kind of in the seemingly random assortment throughout in the vacuum conform themselves and basically attach themselves to the human DNA. They left in their scattered arrangement and conform to the DNA. Now that was already interesting. And now here's where it gets really weird. They took the DNA out and expected the biophotons to just go back to their scattered, seemingly random arrangement, but they didn't. They still stayed in, in confirmation with the human DNA as if the DNA was still there. So for that moment, the human DNA left a permanent impression upon the very stuff that makes up our reality. And so this speaks to, again, that's just a, a, a tiny portion of our DNA, let alone this conscious sentient being and how much power we have on influencing the world around us. So, you know, experiments like that, but then it just goes back also to, you know, when I mentioned our thoughts influencing our, our genetic expression, every thought we have creates correlating chemistry in our bodies instantaneously. And this is the rub is that whether the thought is real based on accurate data, or if it's based on something that's totally made up, your brain and your physiology don't know the difference, but you are instantaneously changing your entire biochemistry. Every single cell in your body, the trillions of cells are instantaneously changing based on your thoughts every single microsecond. I've been saying thoughts become things for a long time. And I finally, I was prepping for an interview I did with Rhonda Brine. Do you remember The Secret? Of course, yeah. So I watched The Secret back in 2008, which is still a couple, just two years after it came out. So it's still pretty early. And I watched it before I interviewed her recently. And at, in it, I don't remember exactly which one said it, but it's like thoughts become things. And I was like, 
oh my God, that's why I've been saying that for so long, because that's probably where I heard it. And, you know, you're just explaining how that's true. And so what I love is that, cause you're such a, you're such a deep diver on the information and the, and the analytics of things and the science and, and the technical part of, part of aspect of all of these things or thoughts that we have or awarenesses that we have, which is so cool because there's so many people that are willing to take things at face value. And then, you know, that's fine. Um, but it's when you can truly explain it from a scientific perspective, from a biochemistry perspective, that it really convinces and anchors people into uh, a new level of not just awareness, but belief in that awareness. Because belief is like, the magic sauce to everything. It's one thing to say, you know, I can go dunk a basketball. It's another thing for me to actually go believe that I could go dunk a basketball. So, um, cause I'm five foot one. Um, so that, that believing is, I think what really will help people transform, which is why I'm excited about this conversation because, you know, I feel like in our world today, there's so many, so much going on. There's so much like outside of our control, um, to directly go out and do something about. And so the only control we really have is over ourselves. And, you know, in the truth is, is that the collective holds the power. And so, so long as we participate in a system, participate in a thought pattern or a paradigm, it continues to exist. Like I say, you know, if you don't think that the newspaper is telling the truth, stop buying it and they won't exist very long. You know, if you don't think that the news is telling you the right thing on the television, stop watching it. And I promise you it'll go away. And so what I want to have a conversation about is not necessarily out there, but in here. And what can we do? Because basically if we all changed are, are, and I'm going to hit some buckets with you because you're just, I just am fascinated. I love the knowledge you have, but if we can affect our mind and our body and our spirit and all the things that have to do with us, if we all did that, the world would be transformed. Um, and so the best thing that we can do is, is live an autonomous life and, and be sovereign in our being and learn how to tap into our intuition and have, uh, be able to be discerning about things and ask questions with comfort instead of hostility. And, uh, I think that this is a perfect conversation to get people to look at themselves. And I know I'm rambling on, but I want you to talk a whole lot after this about all these different buckets and topics that I have for you. Um, but I think that that's the most empowering thing that we can do. And so then just as you said, with, uh, with the mind and with whether a thought is real or not, we start to create our reality. And then essentially we transcend into a completely different reality than the one that we've been in. Once we transform our mind, our body, our spirit, our thoughts, our patterns, our routines. And then what's the difference then we, you know, we can be in the world, but be in a different set, different frame of mind and our reality changes. And then once that changes for enough people, then essentially everything is transformed, um, overall in the world. So, you know, big mission, but it starts with the self. So I'm first, so first off, I'm, I'm curious if you have a story, how you got into health, because I think I'm, I'm just curious about that. If you have a story and then, and then getting into some of the more scientific stuff. Sure. Yeah. I had no idea that I'd be doing this work today that I'm doing. Um, you know, for me, I grew up wanting to be an athlete and 
I went to one of those high schools that churns out professional athletes, uh, like Ryan Howard, MVP from the Phillies. Shout out to my guy, Ryan. He was one of my linemen. He was a blocker. I had no idea he could even play baseball, you know, but David Freeze, other folks like that. So, um, and when I was just 15 years old, I ran a, um, four, five, 40. And if people who are aware of like NFL combine, all that stuff, that's pretty fast for a kid. And so I just had all these aspirations and just the people around me, like Sean, like Sean's got the juice, you know, so not that kind of juice, the, the, the inherent juice or the sauce. You're in and, health and wellness. I think people trust you when you say juice, what you really mean. Hey, there's a lot of stuff people don't know about out true. there. That's true. But so, you know, so that was really my aspiration. And just coming from the environment that I come from, I really didn't have any examples of people being successful doing anything else other than that. Honestly, you know, I, I grew up in an environment where, you know, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of drug use, you know, my, my role models really were drug dealers and people who were in gangs. And it just, it is what it is because they, they seem to have some semblance of success. And so, and I was bust out to quote the good school, you know, I had that opportunity to do that. So I got different exposure mm -hmm. and I also had teachers who took an interest in me. Fortunately, my, my grandmother always instilled in me this really love for education. And I think that the love, it comes from a dynamic experience of making, bringing education to life, mm -hmm. right? So making everything really fun and engaging. And so that's what I strive to do today. Little did I know, thanks to my grandmother and my little first Garfield writing pad that she gave me. Um, but, you know, being in this environment, I remember I had a teacher, uh, Miss Blackmore, who published one of the, the, I wrote a poem and she published it in the school newspaper. And so it's just like, she affirmed that my, I can create something that brings value to other people, right? I can, my words, I can create something from my mind and it can, impact others like it just like this light bulb came on and so i had that continuous thread but uh fate had other plans for me because i was actually at track practice uh running a 200 meter time trial which is half the olympics just wrapped recently so people probably know but it's half the track and it was just a time trial it was me one other person my coach and as i was coming off the curve of the track into the straightaway i broke my hip and yeah, yeah. And nobody touched me. I didn't fall. There was no trauma. And you're a but kid. My, yeah, I was 15 years old and the iliac crest, my, the tip of my hip just broke. And I thought, I didn't know what happened at the time. I, I'd never been hurt before. And so I just came up limping, took a couple of days before I went and got an x-ray done. But there my bone was just floating off in space. And, you know, the physician at the time was like, you know, going to get you some insets, some crutches, stay off the leg. You know, you're going to come back better than ever. And, you know, it's true when you're a kid, like you can heal from a lot of stuff pretty quickly, but nobody stopped to ask, how did this kid break his hip from running? Root cause, Which, right? Right. It should be a foundational, very simple question to ask. But what I was exposed to then was something called standard of care. All right. And so it's just like this big machine, like, you know, people come in, they've got these particular issues. These are the things you do. And a lot less investigation and inquiry and analyzing, like, what are the conditions within my body, within my life that might be creating this susceptibility, right? And so that was just one of a string of injuries. Once I got the football season that next year, which was supposed to be, that was my big moment. You know, I've still got game films. I actually still have dreams about, like, 
playing football, which is so weird for me to say this. I've never said this before, except to my wife. Um, but what happened was I came out great season. I scored like six touchdowns in three games or four, four games, sorry. And everything was looking great. But then the injuries, just one after the other, I ended up with half a dozen different injuries. I've got game films where you can see me just breaking away on a sweep and I'm, I beat everybody. The defensive back is trying to catch up with me. I'm five yards from the end zone. And I just, I just collapse because I tear a muscle or whatever. My body was falling apart. And it wasn't until when I was 20 years old, I finally get the diagnosis of degenerative bone disease, degenerative disc disease. So my spine was deteriorating. And this was the reason why my hip broke and the reason why my body was breaking down. And now I've got this diagnosis which in one sense, it was a little bit, it felt, it felt encouraging because now I know, oh, there's this thing happening. Yeah, at least you know why. But, and, you know, just to make a long story short, this is also where things took a spiral downward in order for things to skyrocket forward. All right, because wow. there's a it's good like ending to this story. You know, it's like on the, you know, it's like on Instagram, the the thing where it's like you got to pull a boat, like the, the the arrow back before it can go forward. So yes. it's it's like that. So what was the low? Well, little did I know at the time. That's such a great analogy that this was writing that story because when I went in to see my physician, you know, he took the MRI, he put it up for me to see, and he told me that I had this condition. And I'm just being, you know, a young, optimistic kid. I was like, okay, so what do we do to fix it? Let's go. <laughs> and he looked, he literally just like looked at me like I was from another planet. He was like, I'm sorry, son, this is incurable. And I, and to this day, I have no idea why I asked him this question, but I asked him, does this, does this have anything to do with what I'm eating and the way that I'm exercising? And to say that I don't have any idea, I have some seeds of it. You know, I had my nutritional science class and, you know, I've been an athlete, but I didn't really understand that these things mattered as much to ask this physician when he's telling me there's nothing I can wow. do. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, what's your, these are his exact words. He said that what you're eating has nothing to do with this. This is something that just happens. And I'm sorry that it happened to you. So he told me that this had nothing to do with what I was putting in my mouth, but then he wrote me a prescription to put some pills in my mouth, right? So this is the level of thinking. And also, by the way, just a sidebar that I didn't use to talk about, but he was clearly not in a good state of health himself, all right? Um, but anyway, so at this point, I get this diagnosis and what was engaged and what we can talk about, of course, I want to circle back, this is important to talk about, was something called the nocebo effect, mm. all right? And the placebo effect many people have heard of, which mm -hmm. is you get a positive injunction that you take this particular placebo, but you don't know that it's a placebo sure. mm -hmm. to lower your blood pressure and your blood pressure proceeds to lower or your blood sugar normalizes or your cancer tumor starts to dissolve. And we've got documentation. There's a, I know that some of this stuff can sound a little bit far-fetched. Um, there's wonderful books if you want it in a more consolidated mm -hmm. place like Mind Over Medicine by Dr. Lissa. Rankin, mm -hmm. for example, but this is pretty easy to find with a simple Google search. So, mm -hmm. uh, resolving back symptoms pain, of that back pain, John Sarnos, isn't it? John Sarnos, what's that book called? The um, something about back pain and basically it being emotional, psychological. I think it might be the back pain cure. I know what you're talking about. Something like that, yeah. So, whether it's you know psychological distress, anxiety, uh, insomnia, 
uh, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, the list goes on and on. We see placebos are so effective. And on average, they're about 33% effective in clinical trials, some yeah. upwards of 80% effective. And this is, again, this is based on your perception that this drug is doing this particular thing. That's yeah. how powerful our minds are. And the, however, on the other side, a nocebo effect is when someone gets an, a negative injunction from an authority figure that something bad is going to happen. So this is when you might hear from a physician that you have, you know, you have two weeks to live or you'll never walk again, or this is incurable. And these are all things that, you know, over the years in my clinical practice, I heard people coming in, they had those same stories. And that was my story as well. And if, if you're getting this injunction, especially your, your, there's parts of your mind that are naturally skeptical, but when you believe that somebody has a position of authority and they know far more like a different universe of information on it than you do, you, it bypasses your logic. And so for me, it bypassed my logical mind because I've always been somebody who's very optimistic and kind of uh, assertive in getting things done. And now I just relented to believe what he said. And so I went from like a nuisance of a pain that I was dealing with when I went in to see him to chronic debilitating pain within, you know, a matter of weeks. And so oh, I was on a slew of medications um, you know, Celebrex was hot then. Um, but all of these different medications, medications to sleep because I couldn't sleep because pain the pain killers, was so bad. Probably, I'm sure. Yeah, painkillers. And every time I'd go to see somebody else, another physician to get another opinion, which I always recommend people to do, I leave with another prescription. And this is this is part of the the, the problem. And by the way, if any if you anybody listening, if you ever do get a diagnosis, you know, a, a bad bill of goods. Oftentimes, the, this, our system is created in such a way that it's forcing you into a decision. You never want to make a permanent decision on a temporary emotion. You, know, you usually have time to reassess things, to seek a different opinion, a second or third opinion. But here's the key. You want to seek an opinion from a physician or healthcare provider that has the same goal as you. Not just for me, I was just going to see other people on other people's recommendation. If your goal, if you've been diagnosed with diabetes, and now you're, you're about to be on metformin or insulin, and your goal is to not have type 2 diabetes, you want to see a practitioner who, whose goal is the same as yours, who knows like this doesn't have to be your story. Mm. You know, So that's very important. So just a little sidebar, and I'm going to wrap this story up. So um, I go through, and this is the, you know, the dark night of the soul experience, oh, yeah. two years of chronic debilitating pain. I make it I'm, I'm so afraid of the pain that I don't move very often. Like I spend probably 90% of my day lying on the floor, sitting on my crappy college apartment couch. And thinking about pain, thinking about pain. Constantly. It was, it was just ever present in my awareness. And now that I'm even more inactive, because each time I'd see another physician, they told me bed rest, be careful, don't do anything, which some most often 99.9% .9 of the time, the worst thing you can do is to do nothing. If the pain is acute, sure, you know, take a couple of days, but it's not just my bones are going to atrophy. Now, everything in my body is going to atrophy right. if I'm not using my body. If you don't use it, you lose it. <laughs> but That's true. I mean, you know, very you simple. To, I mean, it's like a car. It's like a house. I mean, I have lots of houses I don't live in and I'm like, man, the toilet doesn't work. And then there's a flood and the seal broke and then this happened and then that happened. And it's like, you know, it, it, you do, I mean, it is, it is a matter of using things so that it stays 
fresh and so it stays current and so it stays strong and so that you're aware when something shifts as well. Because how do you know how you feel when you push something to the limit? How do you know if there's a problem if you never test it? You know, the body is an incredible indicator of other things. It's like, you know, I there was something at some point in time I read that talked about having a good relationship with the signs that your body's sending you and be glad that it sends you the sign of, you know, some kind of dis-ease in the body instead of you just dropping dead. It's a warning sign. Very simple. This is, so uh, unfortunately the way that our, our healthcare system is constructed is to take symptoms and to create a diagnosis and a label instead of understanding that every single person, every single person on this planet who has type two diabetes doesn't have the same type two diabetes. <laughs> it's just a category of symptoms and you get this label oh. and the symptom of insulin resistance or leptin resistance. This is feedback from our bodies that something is, is off here. It's like, it's like a built-in alarm going off. And instead of addressing the alarm, we silence it or we suppress the symptom. Mm -hmm. But what happens inevitably is that the alarm will go off in another way, mm -hmm. right? So it's just like, oh, you're not paying attention to this Well, Then I'm going to give you all of this additional body mm -hmm. fat as a protection me mechanism or a warning, which our body's always doing things to try to protect us. Mm -hmm. And, or now because you're doing this, now I'm going to have an impact on say, which by the way, statins and anybody can go to Dr. Google and look this up now, but I was sharing this, I don't know, years and years ago. With statin use, uh, we see about a 30% increased incidence of developing diabetes, right? So we're taking a drug to try to modulate, superficially modulate our cholesterol. And then we have this side effect, this rampant side effect of insulin resistance and diabetes taking place. And it's again, we're, we're suppressing a symptom and the body's manifesting another alarm. But what do we do? We take more drugs and drugs have their place. Pharmaceutical medications have their place. Just unfortunately, we're in a system that is drug first. You know, it's pharm pharmacological training, really. You know, we're not, we're taught very little about how to actually, we were taught disease treatment and not about health, what actually creates health. And so for me, and, and to, to wrap the story up, being in that scenario and seeking out help from a scenario that's telling me that I can't get better, finally, one day, as it's two years, it took two years. Fortunately, I learned the lesson. And I realized that even though my physicians meant well, they were not walking in my shoes. Mm. They didn't have the final say about what was possible for me. Mm. And I realized that, you know, they might be out at dinner right now or having dinner with their family. And I'm, I'm silently suffering in my one bedroom apartment in Ferguson, Missouri, just like broken down. And now I've gained all this weight. I feel absolutely terrible. It's like Spiraling. I couldn't even recognize myself anymore. And it was in that moment when I really hit rock bottom that I realized that I've been outsourcing my potential and my health to other people. Mm -hmm. And even though they might be vi viable coaches or sources of, of, of information, it's up to me. I put the food in my mouth. I'm the one who moves my body. Mm -hmm. I'm the one who has my practices, my habits, and all the things that, that, that manifest health. And so here's the, the end of the story and where it, everything changed for the better. When I had that insight and decided, and it is, it, it, I can't stress this enough how simple it is, but it's not easy. I decided to get well. 
And most people never do that when they're struggling with a health issue. It's more like wishful thinking. Like, I, I wish this didn't happen. I hope somebody can help me. I know because I was repeating those things in my mind. Sure. Why me? Why won't Blame. somebody help me? Victimization, being a victim, having a new role in life. Now you're you're this. I'm the diabetic. I'm the cancer. I'm I'm this. It's like, no. You're yeah. you're not any of those things. If you just you know, you can be something else. These things create our identity, right? And our identity, the number one driving force of the human psyche is to stay congruent with the beliefs that we carry about ourselves. So we will continuously do think believe and act in accordance with who we believe ourselves to be and how we believe the world to be. And so when we try to change outside of that, that's where all the discomfort comes from. Because we want to, we're, we're, even though we might not be happy with who we are, we're comfortable with who we are and we don't realize it. And so for me, in that moment of deciding, like, no, come, no matter what, I'm going to get better. I'm going to, what can I do? And I shifted the question in my mind, what can I do to get better? Because I've been looking for them to tell me what to do. And they keep telling me they can't do anything. And so from that moment, three simple, quick things, and we can dive into them deeper if you want. But number one, my low-hanging fruit was fitness and movement. I'd been, grown up as an athlete, and now I'd relented to not do anything at all. So I just went to the school gym. I couldn't really walk well because of this pain. And so I just got on elliptical. I'm sorry, I got on an exercise bike at first and just kind of did some pedaling, which was not easy. And then, you know, within a couple of weeks, you know, I was doing elliptical, I was walking a little bit, I picked up a couple of little dumbbells doing little this and that, and I started to feel better. Simultaneously, I also had this insight when I asked the question, what can I do to get better? It started to change my perception about what was going on around me because being in Ferguson, Missouri, I'm inundated with processed food and fast food. I'm talking about, I'm not exaggerating at all, within a mile and a, and a half radius, there was Papa John's, Domino's, Taco Bell, Arby's, Steak and Shake, Krispy Kremes, Chinese food restaurant, but not like a nice Chinese food restaurant. This is like bulletproof glass, like really, really crappy version of Chinese food. Dairy Queen, multiple McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's. This is, and this. I'm just sharing with you literally half. I'm just surrounded by Lee's chicken, Pop, Popeye's chicken, liquor stores. And so I don't know what health looks like. I don't know. I didn't know that food mattered that I get to make choose what I'm making my tissues out of. So I asked, what can I do to get better? And suddenly people in my life, I knew this particular woman for a couple of years at this time. So I'm 22 when this happens. And I'd known her since I was like 20 or maybe even 19. And she was a chiropractor. And I would just like hang out with her. I thought, you know, she's kind of weird, whatever. But she took me within, within a couple of days of me making that decision to get well, took me to Wild Oats which is- Oh my God, the original Whole Foods. The original Wild Oats got scooped up by Whole Foods. Whole Foods Foods bought Wild Oats. I went to the one in Ohio when I lived in in, in Dublin. I was like, that's so funny, Wild Oats. And you were like, what's this? What is all this? What is a wheatgrass shot? (laughs) Right, that was the first thing I noticed. I was like, why is there grass inside? What is (laughs) wrong with these people? But then I found some books and it had these peer-reviewed studies. And, you know, I was in- in college at the time. And so I was adept at research and that kind of thing. Uh And honestly, I mean, school was always just really easy for me. There was like my last couple of years, I didn't even buy any of the books. My wife knows, you know, I met, I met her at school at the college and I would just like, honestly go take some notes every now and then, but I wouldn't even go to class at often. Just come and take the test and pass the classes. 
Um, so, but I had this skill set of like identifying what matters, right? And so I, I start to see these studies on like degenerative disc disease and uh, low bone density. And I'm just like, what? I didn't know that this matters for bone density, silica and sulfur bearing amino acids and omega-3s. I didn't know omega-3s mattered. What the hell is an omega-3? And so once I found these things out and I started to put, get these, these nutrients because a foundational question and, and, and this answer for everybody is if you are experiencing damage to a particular tissue, a simple question is what is a tissue made of? Right? What is it made of? Because you have to supply your body with the raw materials to build that thing. And our bodies are amazing. They could do a patchwork job on you. But once you give your body the ideal things, your body's so intelligent, it will, it will, it will preferentially choose the right stuff. And so I start to flood my body. Initially, I became a natural pill popper, to be honest. Like I was like, oh, this nutrient, very expensive on a college budget and also not sustainable. It wasn't that it's lacking in intelligence, a layer of intelligence there with these synthetic isolated nutrients versus the real foods that they're found in with all these biopotentiators and all these other nutrients that in my nutritional science class, I was not taught about that stuff. I was taught to tell patients, make sure you get plenty of vitamin C. What kind? There's multiple forms of vitamin C. There's multiple forms of vitamin A. Don't you a. just love that vitamin C is supposedly the hot, like everybody thinks, oh, orange juice, but it's higher in like kiwis and strawberries and other things like that are, you know, seemingly, to, you know, that are more healthy than drinking a glass of orange juice. That's because of marketing. You know this, you know, marketing was telling us, get your drink, your OJ, your get your sunny D. Barely is really orange juice. <laughs> that I don't even know what. I don't even till this day. I think it's Tang. Do you ever remember Tang? I of love course. Tang. When I was a tang kid, I had, had that Tang. tang. <laughs> mm. And the commercials, it was, I think it was like some lips. It was just like some <laughs> lips with the legs. And it's just like, yeah. But I mean, the ingredients on there are in pure insanity. You know, yeah. some of the stuff has actually been a couple of ingredients in Tang are, are not no longer in use because they've been banned. Yeah. Um, but so I, what I did was I shifted to, to, the, to the real foods and just start to flood my body with these nutrients and the third thing was, if you're not sleeping well, you're not healing well. Yeah. My biggest struggle over those two years was sleeping at night. Yeah. I was in so much pain. And the things that I was doing during the day ended up helping me to sleep better at night. And once I could start to sleep and I'm providing my body with these building, these very essential critical building blocks and the movement, because I came across a study, it was actually on racehorses. And this is a multi-billion dollar uh, entity as well. And racehorse might be worth I mean, tens of millions of dollars. And if they break a leg, that can be a major thing. So they did this study and their find sperm. out how between the horse and their sperm, they're worth a lot. Right. It's a very, I mean, stud shout out fees. to every guy in the world's like, man, I want a stud fee. <laughs> <laughs> shout out to the what is it called? The 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 what is the derby? The triple crown. Shout out to the triple crown. But, you know, they wanted to increase the bone density of these horses. So they had a control group and then they had a, a study group where they gave the horses basically what I was doing, supplementation, increased nutrition to increase their bone density, and it did improve their bone density. But they had another study group of horses that they gave nutri nutrition to and walked the horses. And they had an even higher increase in their bone density. And this speaks to what movement is really for. Unfortunately, we've, de we've devolved from an understanding of what movement is about, which this concept of going and exercising, which I love, is a new invention. We never had that 
as a as a species throughout our evolution because movement was just life we just lifted heavy stuff we 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 moved around we had yeah. plenty of of walking and foraging and all these different yeah. things now That's today fascinating. we're trying to replicate That's true. That. like you were just a farmer or you built things or you know there was no it wasn't like you'd purposely walk into a box where there was like bars hanging and things on the wall to throw and dumbbells. And yeah, that's totally true. Never thought about that. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting because, and this leads into what does this mean for us? What did that movement that our genes expect us to move? Our DNA expects us to move is a part of being human. And so what this movement is, if you think about the word exercise, it's very close to the word exorcise by the way, which kind of means to expel things, to get things out of the environment. And a big part of exercise that we have now mountains of peer-reviewed evidence on is elimination, right? This quote, detoxification, uh, supporting mechanisms through exercise and through movement. But another big part of exercise is assimilation and being able to actually absorb all the, the good stuff that you're eating. If you're changing your nutrition, you're not getting the full benefit unless you're moving your body. That's what exercise is really about, assimilation digestion and also elimination, such a powerful supportive force in those things. So bottom line, um, about two weeks from that day of making that decision, I was already feeling incredibly better, but it was six weeks later that I realized that the pain I've been experiencing every day in my life for those two years that had me terrified, it was gone. Now I want to, I want to make this clear. I was so afraid that it would come back I was just, I was actually terrified because it's just like, what is, what if I make a wrong step? I don't know what happened. I was, I was so used to having the pain. I was looking for the pain and it was. Oh, sure. Neuroplasticity was, you know, had happened and needs to happen again. You learned how to, you learned how to be worried about pain and now you have to learn how to not worry about it. Exactly. That is exactly right. And during that period, people start to come up to me at the university that I worked at. I mean, I didn't work there yet that I was going to school at and teachers. So professors would come up to me and, and uh, fellow students, faculty members. These just started to be like, it was like a magnetic thing. They was coming up and they were like, what did you do? You look so healthy. Like, like it was a problem because I looked, yeah. I looked like a, a complete ghost. <laughs> Are you on drugs? That. And you're like, actually I'm off of them. <laughs> and so they're coming up and asking me, and then they would ask me if I can help them. And so these start to become like the first clients that I was working with as I was working on my degree. And I got a scan of my spi- uh, spine done about, it took, it was nine months later and I was still, I was scared. I didn't need to get that affirmation, but I kind of did. I wanted to see for myself and I saw the last physician that I'd worked with and he put the MRI out for me and my, my two herniated discs, L4 and L5S1, they had retracted on their own and my degeneration had reversed essentially. And I could see the light shining through my disc again. They look like healthy disc. Whereas, you know, my first physician had said that I had the spine of an 80 year old. And now here I was. And, you know, at the time he was, he asked me what I did. And I told him like, you know, I'm at the time, at the time I didn't have the vocabulary and I was so overjoyed with this experience that, and everybody out there who's, who knows about health and is passionate about health, they probably had this experience that you just start saying all this stuff and people just don't, they're not even getting it so over their head. I'm like, I'm, I'm exercising and I'm, I've, do you know about, you know, these quote, superfoods and all these different things in it? He's just like, okay, yeah, yeah. But he's like, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. 
instead of really, he's seeing the, my MRI, instead of him really inquiring, what did you do to get these results so I can replicate this in other patients? That's what he said to me. And I left there. He asked you, he did ask you or he didn't. Yeah, he, he did. did. But it was just kind of awesome. like a formality. He wasn't, he didn't really, the answer that I gave him didn't fit the paradigm that he was expecting. Yeah. Like, I, I guess yeah. he thought maybe I took some experimental new drug. I don't know, but I didn't give him the, the answer that he wanted. And uh, this is the, the cherry on top of story from that moment. You know, I, I was already working with people, but I, you know, I graduated, got my degree. I was already a strength and conditioning coach. Uh, at that point, I really went intense in that. I shifted all my coursework back to biology and kinesiology and nutritional science, opened my clinical practice as a nutritionist, worked with thousands of people in a one-on-one context and also just small workshops and things like that. And saw, you know, I've got people coming in 400, their blood sugar is like 400, you know, they're on metformin, insulin, people Mm. on, you know, lisinopril for heart disease and hypertension and, you know, folks who are diagnosed with cancer and all these different things. And seeing so much success. A lot of those stories were people who they've they've been told the same thing. There's nothing you can do about this. And the number one thing that I would do. And so, for example, we had about an 80% uh, success rate with folks coming in who are diagnosed with type two diabetes to normalize their blood sugar without medication, Mm -hmm. working with their, along with their physician, Sure. oftentimes within a matter of weeks, you know, and what the number one thing that we did, I literally would just take the time. I would allot the time to sit down with them, I had this, this board, you know, this uh, whiteboard, and I would walk them through, kind of reverse engineer the disease. Like, okay, so you're diagnosed with diabetes. Here's how it works. Here's your pancreas. These are alpha cells. These are beta cells. And I would take them through the process. And I could see the light come on in their eyes. Like they're literally like waking up in, in that moment. Like I had no idea what was happening in my own body. Again, you showed them the science. It's one thing to say things, another thing to show somebody how it works. And then they go, Oh, exactly. Oh, exactly. It's so it's an aha moment. In in those, in that experience and seeing that day after day after day, eventually I was like, I need to write this down or I need to, you know, get this out to other people because well, I saw- Well, you have a book called Sleep Smarter, which you said that's one of the three things. You have a book called Eat Smarter, which is another one of the things you said, but there's no exercise smarter. Where's that book? Well, dot, dot, dot. Who, listen, so we've got, we've got the Smarter series. You know, there's a lot more to come from that, but- Sleep smarter, which again, I'm a nutritionist. I didn't, my intention wasn't to become a sleep wellness expert, but I just taught a, uh, a class at NYU that came on as a guest lecturer for the neuroscience department and teaching them about sleep. And, you know, speaking at Google, you, I mean, you name it, all these different medical conventions. And really, I mean, folks might not know this because they might be introduced to me for the first time, but Sleep Smarter came out as the first sleep wellness book to actually become an international bestseller. And, you know, it's sold. I mean, it's, it's insane. It's like translated a couple you can see over there. It's in translated in like 20 different countries, I think now. And all these are all separate foreign publications. Love it. And I, I, it created, thank you so much, but it created the industry because I had to fight for it because publishers was like, you know what, you could do really well with a nutrition book or, you know, this is hot right now that sleep hadn't ever, it, it had never done well. And people now, it's like some of the things that I put into culture are part of the lexicon. You know, I just did a talk for Tom Brady's uh, TB12 company, and they have like sleep wellness experts and all these things, sleep wellness coaches. And that domain might not have existed had I not stood up for it. And I was just like, listen, I've got people coming in who 
we're doing all, we've got their nutrition dialed in, their movement practices, but if they're not sleeping, their blood sugar is still deranged. As soon as we employ these clinically proven tactics to improve their sleep quality, the blood sugar finally normalizes, the weight finally comes off, the hypertension finally dissolves. Their memory, you know, we can talk about this as well. You know, memory processing takes place during REM sleep, for example. And so now their cognition is improving and all these different wonderful things. I'm just like, this is the missing piece. This is, in, this is a gap in the education. And so, but also sleep can seem like, which is crazy now because, I've, you know, you can make it sexy, which that was really my goal to make it attractive, but it can be a boring topic. It's the most like overlooked thing in our culture as far as wellness. It's just like, we've, we have this idea that we have to do something to get something. So, you know, we got to keep grinding, we got to work harder, we got to count our calories, all these different things. But sleep is something where you do nothing and you get everything, you know, and it controls your nutrition and your assimilation and your, you know, your, your hunger and satiety, and it controls your, even if your performance to a massive degree, you know, so I had all that data, but the thing that set it apart was the practicality. So number one, making sleep attractive, but number two, there's 21 clinically proven strategies, clinically proven, all clinically proven to improve your sleep quality. And these are, most of them are things you don't have to turn your world upside down to get the benefits because I knew in my practice that people want change. They want to get these results, but they often don't want to change that much. That's the it thing. It needs to be easy. <laughs> they want change, but they don't want to change that much. What I love about nutrition and wellness overall, and I've been down my own wellness journey this year. I've been a lab rat. I've had a needle in my arm drawing blood many, many times this year. I've done all the tests. I've done all the stool and urine and saliva and blood. And I've like learned so much about it. Um, and I'm a lot of the things that you're saying are just hitting home because, uh, you know, I'm generally a pretty well person and I operate at a high level, but a couple things started happening and I was like, I don't understand this. And so, you know, the body was giving me warning signs, but what's so fascinating about learning about all of this in the last six months for me is that everything overlaps. And there's not, you know, when I got test results from things and it'd be like, okay, well, for this, you need these, these are the things to help it. And then there'd be other, other areas that needed um, certain supplementation for a while for gut protocols and things like that. And it, they'd overlap. And so when you talk about sleep, I think about, I think to myself that you can do things to help you sleep, but it's also a symptom too you know, this, it can be a symptom of something else. So maybe it's not actually the sleep that's the problem, but of course you need sleep to heal and to uh, reach more of a state of homeostasis and give your body a chance to, you know, you know all the science behind that, but sleep is a critical of importance for, for well-being. So I love how it overlaps. So I, I, I'm going to rattle off a few things that I was thinking about asking you about, and maybe it's better if you just tell me, uh, at the end of rattling off some of these things, we can hit on them because look, 
we could go on and on and on. We could do a, we could have our a whole podcast together that all we do is hit on one new topic and you know go off on it because there's so much information. But you know the things that I was thinking about were um, and some of these I'm curious personally because I have I I need my own wellness, but I know that they're big buckets in general. So everything from uh, from hormones, so the uh, the endocrine endocrine system to toxins and how that affects the body. Um, mitochondria and the role of that, um, sleep, of course, and um, let's see other things I was going to ask about, um, epicaloric control and the quality of the, uh, the quality of the ingredients that we're getting in the roles that they play on a, on a more macro level than just the micro of calories. Because, you know, I always think too that, you know, similar to sleep that, um, you know, the question everybody wants answered is right. Like, how do I lose weight? Yeah. But generally when you become more healthy, you just do. Yeah. Right. So when you start to fix the inside, the outside reflects it. Um, so and stress mindset, uh, our thoughts, our environment. Um, so what of those things that I just mentioned stand out and make you want to say, this is what people need to know. Yeah. The, the first thing we start right where you started, which is hormones. And, and the first is understanding. So what are hormones, right? So these, this is another word that's in our lexicon that folks don't really have an adequate education on or empowerment about. Hormones are super powerful and fascinating. These are essentially these chemical messengers that send data that are able to communicate data from one cell to another. So they're kind of like these metabolic DMs, right? And they're sending data from one place to another, from all, all various cells in your body are, are picking up on this data. And the question should be, what if the data that's getting sent is damaged somehow? Or what if it goes to spam, right? What if you have insulin resistance or leptin resistance where that metabolic messenger, leptin or insulin is no longer to deliver its message adequately, right? What happens then? So this is how important and powerful our hormones are. It's really, I mean, of everything, if we're trying to identify like what is a foundational thing that we can kind of manipulate in a, in a positive or negative way is our hormones and also our neurotransmitters when it comes to the nervous system, for example, they're kind of operating in the same medium of communication. So we got neurotransmitters, neuropeptides, hormones. Now, with that said, the thing that jumped out for me the most of those things that you mentioned is epicaloric control. And so epicaloric control, so me being a nutritionist, when I was in my nutritional science class in college, the very first day of school, the professor comes in and also again, sidebar, he was not in a good state of health, you could tell. Um, but I, you just put that, you push that to the back of your mind. Like you just, oh, he's a professor, he's a smart guy. And he was, he was brilliant. But when you take a very smart person and you teach them the wrong thing, they become world-class at doing the wrong thing and teaching the wrong thing. And so he was teaching the, the cookie cutter paradigm of this food pyramid and telling us to make sure you get in you know, and instruct people you work with to get seven to 11 servings of whole grains every day. And the list goes on and on. But the first thing that he said, day one, is that if you can control calories, you can control weight. If you, if, if you can control calories, you can control your health. And so it's this paradigm. And the first thing for me, and I take people through this adventure in Eat Smarter on where the calorie came from, like where did the concept 
of the calorie come from? And it actually originated was not, it was in physics and engineering it had nothing to do with nutrition, but, you know, I take people through that, that adventure, but eventually we get to this place of like, where did it become so popularized in our culture as this powerful, it's the dominant metric to manage. And it was thanks to a woman named Dr. Lulu Hunt Peters in the earlier part of like the 1900s. And she had a massive bestseller that essentially was uh, regarding the key, key to the calories, right? And she's really creating this, uh, in a sense, this, this very powerful uh, paradigm that if you can control calories, you can control your weight. And sidebar for her as well, she struggled with her weight for her entire life. It did not fix her problem, by the way. But here's the thing. So it came into culture and it was telling people, specifically, she's more so speaking to women, that we will no longer eat food. You will now eat calories of food. And from that, you will no longer eat a slice of bread. You'll eat 100 calories of bread. You'll no longer eat a slice of pie. You'll eat 350 calories of pie. So we're changing this very complex, the human body is the most dynamic entity in the known universe. You know, Michio Kaku, uh, uh, theoretical physicist said the human brain is the most complicated object in the known universe. And we're now taking this very powerful, it's not a, a calculator with calories, it's really a glorified laboratory and chemistry set and environment. And now we're just saying, if you could do this one thing, you're gonna get these results. So. Um, that's where as the an example, idea as an example of something I found fascinating. One of the tests I've done um, was I used a continuous blood glucose monitor for a month. And whenever I would be stressed and like had a conversation that was heated or something like that, uh, mm -hmm. my blood sugar would go up. I didn't even eat anything. Yeah, It's like an example of how complicated this system is that there's like a million overlapping things in the body that go, oh, no, no, you can't just do this one thing and have the other things not matter. So That's the right. fact that they're trying to use one metric, which I've even thought about the metric of a calorie, like how do you calculate it, right? Like I know that there's, I think there's some sort of like Bunsen burners program that you put things through <laughs> and, and get some kind yeah. of metric, right? But I'm like- that's Shit, not what they're doing. Decided what a calorie was. You're right. That's but they're not doing that today. So it's a bomb calorimeter was what was used initially to disseminate how many calories are in a particular substance. But it was never accurate. It would never was because it didn't account for indigestible parts of food. For example, basically to put it into um, you know uh, a container that goes inside of another container. It's filled with water. Then you use electrical energy to burn the food, incinerate it, and then you like the th that's what you use to measure how many calories were there. It's so you're. This is the thing. You're not a bomb calorimeter. You're a human being, by the way. Number one. <laughs> number two. This is not what's used in, in in counting how many calories are in your food, which is based on the Atwater system, which. Again, we could take time and break down all what that means. Basically, they're just doing math. Food manufacturers are just doing math and putting it on the food label. So, but still, it can give us, it's not to say that a calorie can't be a viable uh, tool that we utilize, but we've made the calorie the king of nutrition and look where it's got us. Mm -hmm. There are going to be some people that are like, well, I've used calorie management and it's helped me. That's great. It, it's going to help people. But when we make that the dominant thing and ignore what I'm about to share, that's where things go dramatically wrong. And, and our society's results are, are sharing that with 252 million citizens in the United States right now are overweight or obese.
And there's like 320 million in the country. It's insane. It's like beyond epidemic proportions. And so here's what's going on. So here's a couple of things. These are epicaloric controllers. These are the things that actually control what calories do in your body. All right. So, and I'm, and I'm so grateful to be able to say this, but my, and, and to be able to talk with you about it, because you really understand, but Bruce Lipton was my inspiration for creating the term epicaloric. And so these are controllers above caloric control. These are what, these are things that control what calories do in your body. So one of them is your brain and neuroinflammation. Your brain controls what calories do in your body. They have a massive influence on your digestion and assimilation. And so a recent re- report, and this was published in the annals of the New York Academy of Sciences, and it reported that hypothalamic inflammation. So this is inflammation regarding the hypothalamus that is a integrator of your endocrine system, your hormones, and your nervous system, your neurotransmitters. And so they said that this inflammation in the hypothalamus, which is probably the biggest epidemic happening right now that people don't know about, we'll talk about why, is a double-edged sword in nutritional diseases. The study authors reported that systemic inflammation from things like metabolic dysfunction, right? So diabetes, for example, that issue in and of itself, metabolic dysfunction and excessive body fat leads to brain inflammation. All right. So carrying body fat creates inflammation in the hypothalamus and inflammation in the hypothalamus creates excessive body fat and metabolic dysfunction. So we get into this vicious circle and essentially your brain, you have the, your your vagus nerve that's connecting the gut and the brain, for example. And I talk about this in eat smart as well, but essentially there's this constant light speed feedback loop with your gut and that, which is also called the enteric nervous system or the second brain, because it's, there's like a massive neuro tissue in the gut itself. There's more, we have more neurotransmitters in our gut than we do in our brain. Isn't that, is that, am I reporting, is that good information or bad information? (laughs) The brain, the brain has the most, but the second most is is found in the gut. gut. Yes. And even the heart as well has its own, we call it a heart brain has, Mm. there's a significant amount of, of neuro tissue, very similar to what's in the brain in our heart as well, but that's a whole other thing. So here's, here's what happens. So there's this constant feedback loop taking place. And based on the assessment between your brain and your gut on how much energy you have stored in your body, what nutrients you need, your brain can actually signal your gut to shut down the absorption of calories from your food or increase the absorption of calories from your food, all right, based on your overall metabolic assessment of what you have in your body. So Theoretically, just say you eat 100 calories of something, you're, with the information your brain and your gut has, it can tell your body like, oh, we only need 50 of those calories. And this is not accounted for in conventional caloric management equations that your brain and your gut can literally determine and dysfunction with them can determine how many calories you're absorbing or not absorbing. And this goes back to hormones with Again, if there's resistance, there's, there's leptin resistance or insulin resistance, and your body thinks that you're starving, even though you've got a tremendous amount of fat stored on your body, right? This is where we can have an increased assimilation of calories from the same food that another person might eat, and they're not even absorbing as much. So that's number one. And I'll just share like two, two more, but I go through and talk about really there's seven of these epicaloric controllers 
that we identify, but one of them is neuroinflammation. Another one. How do we reduce it then? Like, can you give us a little, like, uh, some oh, ad- sure. advice, just like for each of one course. of these, what we can do, because oh. it's one thing to know. It's another thing to have a call to action. Yes. I like, you're amazing. All right. So this is, so this was done by researchers at Auburn university. All right. And I'm, this is not an advocation for what they shared, but the data exists and it's fascinating. So what they discovered was that oleocanthal rich extra virgin olive oil is able to actually repair the blood brain barrier and to decrease brain inflammation. All right. And it just, it is what it is because of the, the, the blood brain barrier is this protective system for the brain. The brain has its own specific diet. We call it neuronutrition. A lot of stuff isn't able to enter the brain, but as the blood brain barrier is broken down through, uh, toxicants, abnormal things that we bring in through our nutrition, stress can break down that blood brain barrier. And so to help to regenerate and to heal it, funny enough, and again, I wasn't the biggest fan of olive oil, but I was like, this is, that's incredible to be able to have that kind of effect on the brain. Like that's remarkable. So what the researchers found was two to three tablespoons a day uh, appears to be very therapeutic in healing and, and, and assisting in reducing neuroinflammation. And that's one. I mean, I've could, again, great. we could spend the whole show. No, that's time. great. Just something that people can do. I mean, doesn't the brain, the brain feeds off of fat, right? Isn't that one of the, one of the things that makes the brain operate um, so much? The human brain, it is, it is fat. It's primarily fat. If we're talking about the dry weight, the brain is primarily water, by the way. So we're talking about somewhere in the ballpark of 80% water, which is another solution. If we're talking about inflammation or fire, Water would be an important attribute here, but most people in our society are walking around, walking around with dehydrated brains. So taking water out of the equation, the brain is primarily fat, but we got to go deeper than that. What kind of fat? Because not all fats are able to actually enter the brain and pass the blood brain barrier. So cholesterol is one of the primary fats the brain is made of. We've got sphingolipids, another one as well, phospholipids. Uh, we've got sphingomyelin, you know, I can go on and on and break these down. And there's certain foods that provide the building blocks that are able to actually cross the blood. Is, this in Eat Smarter? is the information in Eat Smarter, your book? Most of it is. Most of but it? Okay. Even in, in the chapter, where we talk about cognitive health and brain health. I couldn't put everything that I know in the data in there, but also I do talk about it on my show quite a bit. Like I got massive. Sure, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. The fats of the brain and sciences and things are always emerging. I mean, that's a beautiful thing about wellness is we just keep learning. So, okay. Yeah. Olive oil. Love it. A couple of tablespoons a day will help with the blood brain barrier and help you with, uh, with inflammation. Love it. Yes. So another one of these epicaloric controllers, and this is one of the biggest takeaways from today, because it's affirming something that we might say, or a belief that we might carry about nutrition, but now we have solid science to affirm this factor. And another controller of what calories actually do in your body is the type of food itself. So people might say all calories are not created equal. Now we have the data. So this study was published in Food and Nutrition Research, and they set out to find whether or not there's a difference in calories absorbed, assimilated, and metabolic function from eating a meal of whole foods versus a meal of processed foods, Mm -hmm. right? And so in the experiment, what they used was a whole food sandwich, which again, this is not about whether or not this is 
the best source of whole foods, but this is what they did. It was a whole food sandwich, which included a whole grain bread and cheddar cheese. And then they had test subjects to consume a processed food sandwich, which was made of white bread and cheese product, which cheese product, that's what Kraft is, by the way. Oh, we grew up on. Yes. So it's not... You can't yeah. legally even call it cheese. You know, it's craft singles because there's not it's enough. It's amazing what our body will be. It's amazing the resilience that our body has that we can feed it, you know, fruit roll ups and gushers and, you know, uh, craft singles. Golden grams. Golden, yeah, golden fit, gold fish. And Hot pockets. We still grow to be these, you know, we still keep getting taller and we still keep getting smarter. It's, it's really amazing. The human body is incredibly resilient, yeah. to say the least, you know, but just imagine what happens when we really get on the good stuff and what our genes yeah. are expecting. And so here's what happened. So they gave folks, you know, to see again, what, how, how do calories react in their bodies when eating a meal of whole foods or a meal of processed foods? And so what they discovered was that when the test participants, ate the processed food sandwich, they had a 50% reduction in calorie burn after consuming that sandwich versus when they ate the meal of whole foods. Okay. So the processed version of these foods, which were very abnormal, not really anything that the human body can even recognize as food. It created what I call essentially these hormonal clogs that created dysfunction and disruption in the body's processing of those calories, making the body more stingy at hanging on to that caloric energy and not, in a sense, not really knowing what to do with it, you know, versus when they ate the more whole food version of it, it was more efficient in the expenditure of the, of those calories. So truly the type of food matters. So when we have these different diets, again, they can be effective, but if it's a point system diet, for example, and it's not paying attention to the quality of the food, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. And you got to look at the, even the people who are promoting them, you know, oftentimes they continue to struggle with their weight. And we're just like, oh, whatever, whatever. You know, it's, it's, just, it's my fault. It's my fault. I'm not making the point system work for me. It's my fault that I'm not counting the calories adequately enough. Like I got to, I got to cut them more. I got to cut them harder. I've, I've had patients come in who are eating under a thousand calories a day yeah, and their weight will not so budge. hard to do We're working with, you know, their quote weight loss doctor and they come in they're They're just metabolically broken and they've created a state of learned helplessness where they think it's their fault. Like they're just not trying hard enough yeah, and not under, and not getting this education on here's mm -hmm. how your body in these your yeah. hormones and your organs and your fat loss related sure. processes. Here's how it all works. Let's get you well. Let's heal these systems. Or someone that just thinks to myself or thinks to themselves kind of like with your health journey about, oh, well, I just have this disease. I just have this condition. This is the way I am. Somebody might just think, oh, this is the way I am. I'm just heavy. Or this is the way I am. I just this. It's like they accept it as their reality too. Instead of going, now, you know what? My intuition says I'm trying and I'm not getting anywhere. Maybe I need to look somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much more, you know, I, I remember one of the running kind of, it became funny after a while is that people would come in and they are like, I've tried everything. I've tried everything. And when I actually get them to tell me the things they've tried, it'd be like three things, you know, it's just like, but we really <laughs> like feel two, that way. Two or three weeks each. <laughs> but we really feel that way. You know, we really work hard and try to make things happen. 
but then we end up blaming ourselves and not the system yeah. that has given us this paradigm that this is the way to get there, which again, just look at the system, look at the, the results itself. I know the people I've worked with them firsthand. They're not, not trying hard or they're not, not disciplined. It's that we're all so incredibly unique, which leads me to, I'll just share one more. Of these, yeah, I'd love it. Keep going. It's, this is such amazing information. Um, did we get to a call to action for that last one? So he eating real food, right? Yep, so there you go. <laughs> real food. I always think the, the, the logic I try and use is what, how close can I get for it to be made by the sun, right? Mm. Or like maybe the next byproduct from the sun. So plants that come, I mean, I'm such an advocate of a garden. Now I live in Arizona, so I don't have one right now, but, um, I desperately would like one. I had one when I lived in North Carolina and I loved it. Um, but you know, thinking like that, like, can I grow something where can I, can I go to a farmer's market? How can I get something that literally gets picked and eaten right away? And, you know, the next byproduct would be, you know, animal, animal protein, let's say is a byproduct of the sun, right? They eat the grass that then becomes them. And so, so, um, but the closer we can eat to things that were made by the sun um, is trying what I try and think of. I also try and eat something that's alive at each meal. So mm. maybe I'll cook things and I tend to enjoy and it sits well with me to eat things cooked, but then I'll just go, oh, I'll throw some microgreens on that. That's that's alive. Um, so, you know, those are some things that I do. I love it. That's, that's great advice. You know, it's very simple. Again, what have we evolved doing as a species? What is the things that we've been doing the longest, which is reading, eating real food. And, you know, only it's only recent, like literally we're talking about a few decades and the extent like to the extent of even a couple of centuries, if we're talking about highly refined processing of sugar and things like that, sure. you know, in, in the, in the gigantic evolution of, of humanity, yeah. we're talking about a, a book that might be, we'll just say, a million pages. We're talking about like a sentence yeah. on one of the pages on how long we've been eating foods that we can't even recognize where they come from anymore. I don't. I have no idea where the hell. If you just seen a hot pocket, you just came across it. If it was like you're out foraging, is like you see the hot pocket, you're like you have no identification of where that hot pocket came from, except Jim Gaffigan. Maybe. <laughs> oh jeez. You know? Well, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's it's crazy that something that just gets pulled right out of the ground, you know, unfortunately has a, a certain price tag on it. And then something that requires an entire building and a huge system in order to put it through a process um, is, you know, a dollar oh nine for something that is much more highly processed. It's like, you know, it, it it's also not an encouraging format either for people because every, you know, most people have to you know, be careful how much they spend. And, but at the end of the day, I feel like there was some stat I heard or read a long time ago that was that, uh, of course, health being an investment and that the average person spends $300,000 at the end of their life trying to save it. And so if you just took that 300,000 and just spent it your whole life and, and then allowed yourself the freedom to be able to live, um, vigorously and vibrantly and be able to do whatever you want and feel and look better. It's a different story. Yeah, it sounds so good and so accessible. And so if people are wondering, for example, why is it that, you know, an avocado might cost $3 and you can get three cheeseburgers for $3? Like, how is that possible? It really has a lot to do with uh, government subsidies. And I break this down in Eat Smarter as well, because it's such an important part of the conversation. 
because from 1995 to 2010 alone, the US government handed out almost $200 billion in agricultural subsidies to companies who their products largely make processed food and fast food, right? And so this is why you can go, and let me, let me give you an example because I wanted to find out, okay, is this actually affecting our health? Do we have data on this? And a study is published in one of our, our most prestigious journals, the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA. They tracked the intake of the subsidized foods from the government, right? So the, the highest intake of government subsidized foods, again, coming primarily through the fast food window, processed foods, they found that people who have the highest intake of government subsidized foods have almost a 40% greater incidence of being obese, all right? We've got the data. It's not a joke. It's not like, well, this sounds like it might be true or like an observational thing, you know, yeah. like we've got and some now, pretty sound. And now data. loop that back around to the, the thing that we first led off with, which is, you know, the highest percentage of fatalities with COVID is obese people. I mean, let's just keep looping it, right? It's like, yeah. just, you know, how, take care. Like, how do we do it? You just said it. This is not being addressed because it was never meant to be addressed. Mm-hmm. We're talking about our government, unfortunately, funding yeah. disease in our culture and not taking responsibility for it. But the thing is, at the end of the day, we have to take responsibility. That's it's right. us. You started the show talking about sovereignty and personal responsibility. Truly, it is up to us. And then we can expand from there and impact our families and our communities. But we gotta, we've got to mind ourselves first. And truly, we live in... we. The United States is literally the sickest nation in the history of humanity. But I'm talking about chronic, self-inflicted, lifestyle-related diseases. I mentioned already, we have 242 million citizens who are overweight or obese prior to the pandemic, by the way. Those numbers have jumped up since then. We've got 115 million Americans who are regularly sleep-deprived. We've got 130 million Americans who are diabetic or pre-diabetic. We've got 60% of our population has some degree of heart disease already. We've got about 25 to 50 million Americans have autoimmune condition, which they just, all this has come out of nowhere, all these skyrocketing rates. I can go on and on and on with with the statistics, but we're not doing anything about it. Everything Mm -hmm. keeps getting worse. We keep having more drugs. We keep having more treatments. 70% of our citizens are already on pharmaceutical drugs, Mm -hmm. but it's not working. We're not removing the cause, which- the Journal of the American Medical Association this is 2018, big meta-analysis. They said that poor diet is the number one cause of our, our epidemic chronic diseases, heart disease, diabetes, obesity. We know this already, but the thing is, truly, who cares? We have to care and we can change this stuff. Yeah. So um, if I could share that last one yeah. in the, um, these epicaloric controllers, which is really where a lot of the science is at today. You know, I'm already on to some other stuff beyond this, but this is something because, you know, 10 years ago in my practice, like I, like you mentioned, I send people out to get a stool sample and like, let's see what's going on with their, with their microbes. Which is uh, the, the most the, humbling experience I've ever had. <laughs> to literally poop in my hand into a, like a hot a dog, nacho basket, a hot dog basket. Was just, <laughs> honestly, it's just the most humbling thing I've ever done. <laughs> So yeah, it is, it is what all it is. For, all know? for health and wellness though. Right. All for <laughs> all in the name of science, you know, I'm going to poop into this nacho basket. So uh, the, 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 the frontier that people are on right now is this fascination with the microbiome and rightfully so, 
That was the one thing I forgot to mention because I know that that's such a, I mean, obviously with the neurotransmitters and, you know, second brain, um, microbiome and gut health, of course, is something to think about. So I'm glad you're hitting on it. Thanks for reading my mind. Of course, of course. And so that's, it's, you know, it's Greg Braden, you know, he's taught, <laughs> taught us how to do that. So here's the thing. So with the microbiome. I think he is, I'm not sure he might be an alien here on earth. Maybe there's it's a bunch possible. of It's possible. It's possible. Yeah. So yeah. The, with the microbiome, this is an epicaloric controller as well. Your gut bacteria, which we have upwards of like 40 trillion plus gut, gut bacteria. So specifically bacteria with the human microbiome, it isn't just bacteria. I just want to preface by saying this. We also have, I mean, I'm talking trillions, like 400 trillion virus particles that live in and on our bodies, right? We've got a plethora of fungi and archaea, like these ancient microbes, like it's crazy. We're, we're far, we're not as human as we think. We're, it's a, we're symbiosis. We are a walking rainforest in a sense. And so the microbiome, if we're talking about, but we're talking specifically about bacteria, which are gut bacteria. We know that we have these quote, friendly flora, right? Friendly bacteria, these probiotics. And we also have um, kind of what we would term to be um, pathogenic or opportunistic bacteria, which even within that, we all have an array of all of them, but it's about the balance because even what we refer to as these kind of opportunistic bacteria, we have to, in a normal, healthy human microbiome, when being able to study people, you know, hunter-gatherer tribes who have healthy microbiomes, if we isolated this particular bacteria we call opportunistic and just said it's bad, we miss out on the fact that, oh, this is actually doing this for us. This is helping to create B12, or this is helping to do fill in the blank, creating, helping, doing something in us for us. But when it becomes a dominant strain, when it's not kept in check and in balance, that's when it can become pathogenic or, or hurtful. So we have to keep this all in context. So when I say like friendly bacteria or opportunistic, still, you have to have that caveat that everything plays a part. And so here's the point with epicaloric control. So one of the studies that I, I outlined uh, in more in depth, I'll just give the bullet points here uh, in Eat Smarter, but it's really fascinating to understand is the researchers we basically identified that there's a certain microbiome makeup that's associated with obesity and insulin resistance and excessive body fat based on your microbiome. So that's what I was going to say is like, I could have a patient send out for a stool sample and I can get their report back and I can know with a very, very high accuracy, whether or not they're obese without ever seeing them a day in my life, just based on their microbiome makeup. And so this is what the researchers uh, discovered, and this was published in one of our most prestigious medical journals on the subject matter. And what they discovered was that this shift can happen. So what they, here's here, I'll give a summation. I'm, I'm trying to hold back on giving the whole thing because I, with the time, but I'm gonna, I gotta give it, I gotta give it to you. So what they did was they took mice and I know we're not mice. We're not Mickey mouse. I'm going to come back to us, but they took mice and they took fecal samples from humans and they implanted the, the fecal samples into, into lean mice. So they took samples from humans who had a gut microbiome associated with obesity and implanted that into lean mice. And they took samples from a human sample that has a, a gut microbiome associated with leanness and implanted that into lean mice. Those mice 
stayed lean that received, that received the, quote, lean bacteria. The mice who received the, quote, fat bacteria, these mice, even though they're on the exact same diet as the other mice, nothing else changed, these mice became insulin resistant. Their body fat went up and they became obese simply by changing their bacteria. And so this was paralleled in now in human studies as well and seeing this same phenomenon. And one of the best examples is uh, I cited a, a study done on identical twins, all right? You can't get any better comparison. And this was from my hometown, so it was St. Louis University. And the researchers took this large database and they looked at the microbiome makeup of twins. And they found that when one of the twins has a higher ratio of basically, they broke it down to these firmicutes and, and bacteriodetes and firm, having a higher rate, uh, ratio of firmicutes was more affirmative towards being obese. And so they found when the one twin had a high ratio of quote fat bacteria, even though they're in the same environment, doing the same thing, eating the same food, one twin had a greater, much greater propensity towards becoming overweight or obese than their identical twin. Okay. Well, what is that? That's a, that's a lot of, that's some smart jargon, but what is that? How do we fix that? How do we make sure that, how do we, how do we not have the bad or the fat building bacteria? How do we change our, change our gut, gut flora so that we are the lean mice? Yes. Yes. Shout out to, to Mickey and Minnie. Uh, so this, I'm going to give you two, two things. Number one, this was a recent study. And this was published in the International Journal of Obesity. So again, one of the most prestigious journals on this subject matter. And it revealed that a higher diversity of gut bacteria is directly correlated with, wet, with less weight gain and improved energy metabolism, independent of calorie intake and other factors. Okay. Epicaloric. All right. And so going on from that, taking a pivot, researchers uncovered that having a higher diversity of foods that you eat increases the diversity of your gut bacteria, all right? Which only makes sense because different bacteria prefer different foods. And so this is where we have to be careful about elimination diets, which can be very helpful by the way, because certain bacteria, in order for them to stay in your metabolic home, they have to have their preferred food source. But a key here is the diversity and so if you think about, even if, we are, if we're eating healthy, we can get on that food meal prep gone awry where we're eating the same stuff over and over again. And diversity is one of the biggest keys because truly if we're not giving the bacteria, to those, so those are called prebiotics. So prebiotic sources, and I wanna make this point clear, every single real food is a form of prebiotic. Every single one. We can- So I shouldn't have Google taken it. my prebiotic powder this morning? With my glutathione or whatever it is, and <laughs> the, the powder that tastes like chalk. So we can, I was just going to say that we can isolate and say, hey, this is a prebiotic here. This is a great prebiotic food, Jerusalem artichoke, onions, whatever the case might be. That's what happens when you go to Dr. Google. Fermented foods and things like that. I mean, like people I think are kind of aware of what a prebiotic is, but the fact that it's in everything is great to know. And why yeah. is it in everything? Why is it, how do, why is, why don't we know that? Why is it like, oh, eat pre prebiotic foods, like, you know, eat, you know, kraut and yogurts and um, artichokes and certain other things that, that help with that. Why, why is it that we don't know that? So here's the step. So we have prebiotics that feed the probiotics that then create postbiotics. 
okay? So postbiotics are the things that our bacteria make in us for us, all right? So like short chain fatty acids, for example, that help to maintain the integrity of our gut lining that even play a role now we're looking at how these scapas produced by our bacteria affect our brain, right? So prebiotics feed the probiotics that then make postbiotics. So that, that's the steps. Why don't we know about this? When I worked at the university, this light bulb came on and I, because I was working at a university, I got to meet people from all over the world, you know, from Nigeria, from India, from Iran, from France, the list goes on and on. And I would ask them what kind of fermented food did their culture eat? And a lot of times it would be like something they had to dig up from their memory. Every time I never met one person in this internet, especially if they're coming from that country to the university who didn't have a cultured food in their culture. Right. And it's just something that humans have always done. We've always had as a part of our evolution. But today, again, it's just been, you know, it's, it's this processed food, hungry man dinner paradigm. That's, oh, yeah. that's and then like, you know, people go buy yogurt and, you know, they end up buying something that's probably a lot less like yogurt and a lot more like sugar. Right. Gogurt. It's gogurt now, you know. If, if yogurt, gogurt can sit on, I just walked by it the other day, can sit on the shelves in the middle of the grocery store without refrigeration, <laughs> it should Something tell wrong. you that it might not really be real. In addition to the diversity of foods, and as I mentioned, every real food on planet Earth functions as a prebiotic. For some particular bacteria strain, we, we know so little about nutrition right now. We act like we know everything, but this is taking a meta perspective and saying, hey, truly, every one of these foods that humans have subsisted on for countless you know, eons functions as a prebiotic in some form or fashion. Now, here's the last part. If we're talking about probiotics themselves and accessing them directly from foods, we've got to realize that whenever you eat a real food, you're eating that food's microbiome, okay? So if you're eating a blueberry, you're eating that blueberry's microbiome and taking that on. If you eat an avocado, you're taking that avocado's microbiome and taking that on. Our definition of probiotics is very limited. So, you know, but that the fermented foods can be like a powerhouse in that domain because we've got a plethora. Like, so we've got sauerkraut, we've got kimchi, we've got yogurts, we've got kefirs, we've got... If you look at, you know, um, certain cultures in, in Asia, for example, and, you know, them fermenting soy for, for, for thousands of years, and then now there's such a debate about the quality of soy, like, is that a health food? They weren't eating soy dogs and soy ice cream and soy sandwich slices and tofurkey. We got to understand that it's a very different animal. And also, the, you know, we could get into the, the genetically modified organisms, all that stuff. These are all new inventions. But them fermenting soy that they've grown themselves, you can see that that was a viable source of, of probiotics, but not for everybody. This is the key. And really my message in trying to really work in to push this into culture, like with, each, with Sleep Smarter, it became a cultural phenomenon. And most folks, they might not even know that this stuff came from me and the language. And how I know this is that the language people use, like these were literally bars that I wrote. These are sentences that I wrote, that I created. And I could hear, you know, this particular health expert saying this or this physician saying that. It's like, I, I wrote that, you know, it's beautiful. And that's letting go of the idea because I think, and I just want to share this for, for everybody listening too, we need you right now. We need you to be in your power to share your voice.
But sometimes we get scared to share because of negative, what we deem to be like negative pushback, or somebody might take my ideas. It's 2021. It's the internet. Yes, people are going to take your ideas, but they cannot replace you. They can never be you. You are a unique phenomenon. This goes back to even everything we're talking about with nutrition today. Every single person on planet Earth, you, that you right now listening to this, there has never been a person on planet Earth that has a metabolism just like yours or a microbiome just like yours or a brain just like yours. Never in the history of humanity. You are completely unique. You have a unique metabolic fingerprint. And there will never be anyone like you in the future, ever, ever. This is a unique opportunity. And here's the biggest part. Even yourself tomorrow, even yourself next week is not going to be like you are now. You are a constantly evolving. Health is very flu fluid and dynamic. But we tend to see it as like, I got this thing. This is working for me. And when that thing stops working, we beat ourselves up and not understand we are evolving and changing. And we can get into an adventure paradigm of constantly exploring and, and adapting as things go. I think that's a perfect way to close the loop back to well said. Thank you so much for all that information. I mean, there's, I'm going to go drink some olive oil right now, but um, <laughs> it, it's such a good way to close the loop back to the sovereignty of our decisions and ourselves and how we show up and what we do with our life because no one is us. So stop using cookie cutter basics like a calorie or like do this, do that. It's you're unique. So trust your instincts and trust that there might be something going on beyond what, um, but a, what a one dimensional sort of doctor or someone says to you about what to do because you are your thoughts. So if you think that you should be feeling better, you should. I absolutely agree. Thank you so much. I mean, this, we have such an opportunity right now. You know, that's how I see it. I know that things are looking so fluxed up. I said flux. They're so fluxed up. But when things are in such a, a appearance of chaos, they're actually easier to change than when, when they're very fixed and solid and, you know, and dogmatic. And so, but we have to take advantage of it. We, we're acting like, unfortunately, things were going well and they were not going well. You know, we're just like accelerating the gas right towards a bridge that has a giant hole in it, you know, and this isn't like Fast and Furious. This is not like a movie. Like literally we can crash and burn. We've, we're getting treatments that appear to like be a bridge from here to where we want to be, but we keep seeing again and again and again that the bridge is not complete. It's not getting us there. So we need to change things. And you know, moments like this and amazing people like you, you know, sharing your voice and creating entities and platforms like this to have these conversations, truly, this is how things are going to change. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.